And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, January 22nd, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our web editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, military families on the move can look forward to a welcome box. Plus, with electric postal trucks, logistics are all about charging stations. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, agencies have until the end of the day today to close two big cybersecurity vulnerabilities. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency issued an emergency directive after software company Ivanti discovered vulnerabilities in two widely used products. Federal News Network's Jason Miller joins me now with the latest. Jason, what's going on? What are these vulnerabilities in Ivanti software and how are attackers taking advantage of them? There are two big ones in their secure virtual private network software products. And, Tom, these are VPNs. I mean, we all use VPNs in one way or the other. Whether we use Avante or not, it's, it's, that's what they're trying to find out. But these are two big ones that Avante found January 10th in the web component of what they call Avante Connect Secure and Avante Policy Secure. Now, Eric Goldstein, CIS's Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity, describes the problems that these vulnerabilities would or could create for agencies. The vulnerabilities would exploit it in tandem, uh, could allow an attacker to execute arbitrary commands on a, on a vulnerable system and gain persistent access, which they could then use to access sensitive information or move within the system to achieve additional objectives on the target network. This is Eric Goldstein talking to reporters Friday, says over the past week, there's been some widespread attacks using these vulnerabilities, he says, to gain deep access into networks, to steal data, or just for that matter of like persistence. Oh, we're here, we're inside, let's wait till we uh, can achieve other goals because we're already past the, the initial sets of security. So, Tom, these are very serious, and I think that shows why D, uh, DHS put out those uh, emergency directives. And agencies now have a homework assignment to close them. What do they have to exactly do here? They do, and it was a quick turnaround. I'm sure a lot of chief information security officers worked over the weekend, Tom, to really start to really address these things. Uh, Avante did put out some help to address these vulnerabilities, but Sis's Goldstein says agencies should immediately do what the company says, but even go further to ensure they don't have these problems that maybe they don't know about. I'll particularly note that the directive requires agencies to implement uh, temporary mitigation instructions that are in place in lieu uh, of a patch, which has not yet been issued, as well as to run a tool called Integrity Checker, which is provided by the vendor uh, to assess compromise. Uh, and so agencies are required to take uh, those steps uh, and provide uh, feedback back to uh, CISA. And Tom, I think one of the things you heard Eric Goldstein say there is make sure you haven't been impacted because you may not know that you're running it or you may think you put the the mitigation factor in because there is no patch yet from Avante, but maybe it didn't take or it's not working well. Or maybe you have been uh, attacked and they were successful and you have to kind of clear out the network in some way. So I think there's still a lot of concern about what could happen. And this is also why a, a week after this directive gets issued, so next Friday, or this coming Friday, uh, agencies must report back to CISA using a template that CISA has provided to inventory all their instances of Avante Connect Secure and Avante Policy Secure on their networks. And 
including all the details, action taken, and the results. And then by June 1st, which seems like a long time away from now, but CISA will report back to the White House, Office of Management Budget, and upstairs to their uh, headquarters, Homeland Security Department, what the status of this Avante effort is and any outstanding issues that they haven't closed. So we'll still be talking about this, Tom, for quite a while. And I guess one of the questions would be how widespread this is, how big a problem is this for agencies and which agencies? And I guess the private sector, too, is also a user of Avanti software. Absolutely, this is a big problem. We just don't know how big it is, especially for the federal government. As you heard Goldstein say, maybe 15 agencies. But again, a lot of the work that happened over the weekend, have a lot of the work that's going to go on the rest of this week, Tom, I think they're going to be really trying to understand it. Now, Goldstein seems to believe the impact is limited on federal civilian agencies. At this point, we are assessing that the potential exposure on the federal civilian government uh, is is limited. Uh, there were, uh, you know, around I will say 15 or uh, agencies or so that were using these products in the first instance, and they have mitigated those vulnerabilities. And so, we are not assessing a significant uh, risk to the federal enterprise. But we know that that risk is not zero. And given the the widespread exploitation activity uh, around the country and the globe, as you noted, that's precisely why we issued today's directive to ensure that every agency is both taking the mitigation step and also running the integrity checker tool to confirm that they have, in fact, not been impacted. Now, CISA began working with agencies as soon as Avante made these problems public. Uh, Eric Goldstein says there have been calls with agency security operations centers and others. And CISA actually has used its own tools to determine how big of a problem this is as well. You know, things, whether it's uh, continuous diagnostics and mitigation or other similar tools that they have uh, through the agency dashboard. Right. And this is an emergency directive. These don't happen that often from CISA. I suppose if they wanted, they could find a reason to put one out every day. They could easily have CISOs jumping through their skin constantly. So CISA, in issuing an emergency directive, they must mean this one really does matter. Absolutely. And again, as you said, they don't put out these all the time. They use them very judiciously. So when they do issue one, it is that big deal. Now, Goldstein says he's not ready to place any blame on any one country or any one organization yet. But he says there are a lot of similarities with other attacks perpetrated by China over the last few years. And I think this is why... They're putting out an emergency directive because they said, well, we can't say who did it or, or, or how they did it. We know that it has, there's a lot of things that are saying, OK, that, that raises big red flags. Now, Goldstein says this type of attack also has the government on edge because of what happened a few years ago, Tommy, if you remember the Pulse Secure vulnerability. Certainly the campaign targeting uh, Pulse Secure devices uh, from, from two and a half years ago increased our focus um, as an agency and federal enterprise on securing edge devices uh, more generally. Uh, for example, uh, it contributed to our decision to issue uh, binding operational directive 2302 last year, requiring agencies to remove or remediate exposed network management interfaces uh, for, for edge devices. And so we have put a tremendous amount of effort in securing the types of devices and products uh, more generally. Um, but as noted, uh, we remain engaged in the work of ensuring that every instance of these products across the federal enterprise has been mitigated 
and that we are validating that the compromise has not occurred. Again, this is Eric Goldstein talking about this new vulnerability in Avante virtual private network software. Tom, I think it's a good sign that the Edge devices, the Pulse Secure experience that they've had, shows that they've already done a really better job than maybe we've seen over the you know previous 10, 15 years of securing these Edge networks devices. But again, a lot of concern based on, again, the similarities that they've seen with China. So uh, CISOs were busy over the weekend. They'll be busy the rest of the week, I'm sure, and into uh, much into the new year. Right. And two thoughts come to mind. One, if Ivanti was vulnerable, then in some ways this is a classic supply chain attack. A major, you know, prime supplier of the software to the government, you know, was compromised. And in another way, it kind of shows the importance of the cybersecurity maturity model certification program, even for cybersecurity vendors have to be protected, have to protect themselves. One of the reporters on the call on Friday asked a very similar question, Tom. They asked, is this a issue that Avanti should have known about? Was this a zero day? How would you determine? And Goldstein, to his credit, was very politically correct. He said, well, you know, we're still, we work with all vendors. We want, we really want to push the secure by design software effort. And he was not ready to blame Avante or any other software vendor for a vulnerability like this. And, and Tom, I think, you know, to, to Sisa's credit, they're trying to get in front of it. And, and I think the work they've done with CDM, the work they've done with some of their other efforts, uh, Zero Trust, as an example, are really addressing, hey, we know there will be vulnerabilities in software no matter how good we think we can do. So we have to be ready for them and limit the exposure and limit the problems that could occur should we get compromised. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. And you'll have a story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, with electric postal trucks, logistics are all about charging stations. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. For better or worse, the Postal Service will replace its old local delivery trucks with a combination of gasoline and electric ones. It's a huge acquisition, nearly $10 billion. The program includes the acquisition of electric chargers, which require testing and evaluation. The USPS Office of Inspector General took a look, and here with what it found, Deputy Assistant IG Amanda Stafford. Ms. Stafford, good to have you with us. Hi, thank you for having me. And there's a lot of pieces to this acquisition. Uh, tell us what you were focusing on specifically here. As you mentioned, about 66,000 of the vehicles that will be acquired will be battery electric. So in preparation for their arrival, the Postal Service first focused on charging station acquisition and infrastructure readiness. Successful charging station procurement, testing, and installation will ensure that the new vehicles can be charged and ready to use when they arrive. Specifically, we looked at the contracts related to the charging stations. We wanted to verify that the charging stations met the requirements laid out in the contractor's statement of work. And our objective was really one to determine whether the Postal Service was effectively testing and monitoring the performance of the charging stations, and two, to evaluate whether they were providing perfecting oversight over that storage of them as well. All right. And the contractor, is it the manufacturer of the vehicles or is it a manufacturer of charging stations or is it some kind of an integrator that makes sure that one is compatible with the other? Because that's a question. Right. The charging station manufacturers are different than the vehicle manufacturers. The Postal Service has three charging station suppliers providing different types of chargers. And the vehicles are produced by a different combination of providers. So they're not the same. So 
Overall, we really concluded that it was prudent for the Postal Service to elect to test and monitor these commercially available charging stations. Um, they were going to be deploying up to 41,000 of them throughout the delivery network. And they used first article testing to really verify that they met the requirements laid out in the contract statements of work. While traditionally you don't need to do a first article test, it's not required for something that's already commercially available, but the Postal Service really wanted to go above and beyond to look at the interoperability and identify any performance issues. You probably didn't include this, but maybe you did. Are they running into a possible crazy complexity cost question if they have three different types of chargers and I'm presuming they have different plug styles and having rented an electric car once, I'll never do it again because one plug doesn't go into that car and that car doesn't fit that plug. And could they have chaos when they have 10 trucks that need charging, but there's only six of the compatible plugs available or something? And like you did, that really wasn't in the scope of this particular audit, but obviously looking at all of the different types and looking at sort of monitoring their performance in the future would be something that would be great oversight for us to continue to keep tabs on. And when you mentioned first article testing, that's getting a sample and setting it up and seeing what it does? Exactly. They had a number, each of the manufacturers provide their different units and the postal service tested each. We actually went to one of the sites and were there for the testing. Right. Okay. And what are some of the chief parameters that they're making sure that these things will do, because it's probably different from a home installation where maybe things are more controlled. Right. They were looking at sort of workmanship issues, software issues, hardware issues. Really, we found that any of the issues that were found during the testing were all corrected and they were fully approved by the end of June. But yes, they're looking at different sort of how does the charger physically work? Is it physically working as well as sort of the software issues themselves? We're speaking with Amanda Stafford. She's Deputy Assistant Inspector General of the U.S. Postal Service. And you found on that aspect of the acquisition, they were pretty good in doing that first article testing to make sure the darn things would work. And I presume hold up under rugged multiple person use, which is always a problem for any kind of machinery. But there are some things they need to work on, you found also. Yep. So they did a lot of things that went really well. There were some areas for improvement. We found that the Postal Service really needed to look at the management controls over the storage of the charging stations that were at the Material Distribution Center. Specifically, facilities management did not employ necessary physical safety measures to protect and deter theft of Postal Service assets. This is location, there were thefts in the location where they were being stored. And we found that despite previous thefts, that some of the crucial remediation measures that were identified previously had not yet been implemented. So there was, again, a break-in uh, that happened again in May where that location was, and it resulted in additional losses to the Postal Service, including the theft of some of the charging station heads and as well as some IT equipment. Interesting. So these things are not like a parking meter where it's a steel unit that's in concrete. I mean, nobody steals parking meters and they're out there all by themselves. These are a little bit more portable than that type of equipment. I would say that this was a central distribution center. So this is where they were going to be centrally storing those items to then disperse and then permanently install. So I think, you know, it was a prudent decision to have them placed in a location and have them available ahead of time. But at the same time, there was uh, some security, you know, safety measures. I imagine they're in high demand because that's an expensive component relative to the vehicle, right? I mean, again, I don't know what they cost. I wouldn't say they're extremely expensive, and I don't want to opine as to sort of the cause of the theft. I think that there had been previous issues, and it may be completely unrelated. But that being said, you know, we just wanted to make sure that that facility was secure. 
but they don't give you the charger with the car, so to speak. That's a separate acquisition. They're separate acquisitions, correct. (laughs) All right. So what were your recommendations then here? So we just have one recommendation, really, because of the insufficient safeguards, we recommended that the Postal Service take urgent action to finalize and implement the physical security plan for the assets stored at that materials distribution center. And by the way, is there one charger per vehicle? Is that part of the acquisition? Or would there be like, you know, I don't know, I'm making this up, six chargers for a given postal installation? And if there's 15 trucks there, they would just be rotated through the chargers or maybe all the trucks aren't there all at once anyway. Yes, you don't necessarily need a one-to-one ratio. You don't need one charger per uh, vehicle, no. And how big are these chargers that someone could carry one off? It's bigger than a computer charger, which you can fit in your pocket. They have various models, so I can't exactly say, but yes, you would not just carry one off into your pocket for sure. And like I said, they will be taking those chargers and installing them, you know, permanently, physically into the different locations where they'll have the electric vehicles located. So eventually they get screwed to the wall in some way or mounted in a way that you can't walk off with them. And and that was part of the reason why they had different types of manufacturers and different types of charging stations so that they could support, you know, the buildings already exist. So they have to make sure that the charging infrastructure fits within the confines of those buildings that they have. And do we know yet where the Postal Service plans to deploy them? I mean, there are some very large installations that are almost 24-hour operations, you know, like a small city mail center, you know, whereas some rural places or tiny post offices are closed and alone for a lot of the time during the day and would be more, I would say, subject to break-in or theft. I think the Postal Service definitely, as part of their electrification strategy, really thought through what locations made sense from a distance standpoint, you know, all the different variables. That was part of their environmental supplemental that they created. So it was very much thought through, but they're still in the process of rolling it out. And I'm sure it's a dynamic process that could change over time as they assess needs and where they need to have them. It could vary and change. And will you be looking at the other parts of the acquisition, the vehicles themselves at some point? That's right for future work, for sure. Amanda Stafford is Deputy Assistant Inspector General of the U.S. Postal Service. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Deliver the Federal Drive to yourself. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, once again, Congress kicks the can down the road. But first, military families on the move can look forward to a welcome box. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. An organization that supports active duty service members has launched an initiative to make changes of duty stations a little easier. The Military Family Advisory Network has partnered with some large retailers to give families a little something when they arrive at the new location. Here with the details, the network's president and executive director, Shannon Razadin. Ms. Razadin, good to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. And tell us a little bit more about the Military Family Advisory Network. There's a lot of service organizations out there, mostly for veterans, but you're talking about the active duty folks, huh? 
Absolutely. So we're a 10 year old organization. What we do is we conduct research and work directly with families to identify where people need more support and then build collaborative solutions. And so we've uh, done a lot of work to uncover the challenges that military and veteran families face. And then we really work to make sure that we're not just sitting on this information, but that we can develop these collaborative solutions that will drive change where people need it most. And it seems like change of regular duty station, they happen hundreds of thousands of times a year, always fraught with difficulty for families, starting with the move itself, the physical moving companies and all of this. But apparently, from what you're doing, arrival can be a challenge. So we research the issues and the causal factors that lead to, for example, food insecurity and some of the economic security challenges that families experience And after we've interviewed more than 300 families who are experiencing these difficulties, we found that there were a few things that were happening in people's lives that brought them to the greatest point of vulnerability. And one of those was a recent move. And so what we are doing is we're working with partners to help make those moves a little bit easier and ease some of the financial burden that's associated with a move, starting with this pilot at Fort Cavazos. All right. Well, let's tell us what they get, what you organized here to present them with. So when families arrive at Fort Cavazos, they will have the opportunity to receive a pantry starter kit. And what that is, is it's this box that's filled with about $150 worth of things that you have to throw away or replace every time that you move. And while so many of the move-related expenses are covered, there are things that are out of pocket that people do have to lean into their budget to figure out every time that you move. And when that happens every two and a half years, it creates this constant restart that can put people behind the eight ball a bit when it comes to their finances, not to mention things like paying first and last month's rent. And so when people figure out when they arrived for Cavazos, we're getting them these things that they might need, but then also we're helping them plug into local resources. As an organization, we believe that oftentimes it's not a case of if the resource that provides support is there, but it's more so if people are aware of it. And so when you're living this transient life and moving on average every two and a half years, it can be difficult to plug into resources. And so we're creating this dignified mechanism to provide support and help people connect locally when they move. And so in that kit are food and household items like mops and that kind of thing? Everything from shower liners to shelf-stable items. The thing is that we might not think about, but when you arrive, it's, oh gosh, I forgot about blank. Uh, things like it's how difficult it can be to create those first few meals when your household's goods have not arrived yet. And so we're really trying to make life a little bit easier and let people know that we're with them every step of the way. We want this transition to be as easy as we possibly can and to help people connect with those local resources so that they can as seamlessly as possible integrate to their new home. And Court Cavazos is the, and I'm reading from their website, the Army's premier installation to train and deploy heavy forces. It sounds like a lot of people go through there in the basic type of training, and it sounds like a lot of the people that go through there are probably at the lower ranks and the lower paid ranks. Is that why you chose that location for this program? Tom, that's exactly why. And when we looked at food insecurity, we saw that around four Cavazos had the highest frequency of food insecurity. And so we know that people there, in some cases, are having a hard time making ends meet. And so we wanted the data to drive where we started this program. And that is why we chose four Cavazos. We're speaking with Shannon Razadin. She's president and executive director of the Military Family Advisory Network. Sounds like you know something a little bit about being a military member or spouse that gets moved. 
I do. My husband and I got married and then immediately we moved overseas to Rota, Spain. And the culture shock, both from the perspective of moving to an Oconus location and then figuring out what life as a military spouse looks like, it can be hard. And so I'm really honored to do this work. Most of us at Military Family Advisory Network are military connected. And so we bring an authentic approach to the work that we do. And we're really proud to serve the community and integrate ways to make sure that what we are doing is actually driving impact and driving change. So we really build in rigorous program evaluation into the work that we do to make sure that families get the help that they need. Because at the end of the day, families do not care who the support comes from. They care that they get the support that they need. And so we're focused on being that conduit and helping people navigate every phase of military life. And you have participation from Tyson Food and Walmart. I guess between those, there's lots of chicken to eat and everything else you could need in life. And are they donating these materials into these boxes? So the support looks very different depending on who the partner is. So you mentioned Tyson Foods and Walmart. They are really providing the funding to get this pilot off the ground. We also just announced a partnership with Instacart. And so when families are arriving, they're asked to take a brief survey. And if they screen as food insecure, they are going to be able to get food support from Instacart. Again, creating these dignified solutions to help people navigate the challenges that they're experiencing. And so we believe that through smart partnerships, we can make one plus one equal three. And uh, we're really honored to have these incredible partners doing this work alongside of us because at the end of the day, moves are difficult. And uh, we're all here to make it a little bit easier for these families. And do you have volunteers that are stuffing boxes and that kind of thing? Our partners have been incredible. And so we've teamed up with Armed Services YMCA and the Cohen Clinic. They are distributing the boxes, but we are working with an organization called Emoja, and they are putting the boxes together at their warehouse. And we're really proud of just the warmth these boxes exude, not just from the things that are inside, but also the care that's going into putting these kits together for families. And what's important to note is this is the first phase of this work and we'll be rolling out the next several phases over the course of this year. And we're very excited to help really address these left of crisis experiences for families. Yeah. My question is, can this scale? Because when you start looking at all the possible military installations, you've got a pretty big challenge here. It can scale. And that's really why we've taken the intentionality that we have. And so what we are doing right now is we're testing and learning a lot. And from there, we'll take a look at our data. We just closed a survey in December to figure out where is the next location that needs the greatest support. And we'll scale to that location and and grow from there. At the end of the day, as an organization, we're focused on being the catalyst. And so we're really hoping to create the proof of concept and then really, you know, see where it goes. But we really are invested in making sure that this works, making sure we have the data that backs the impact of the program and growing it because families need the support and they turn to different places for support. And so there's not a one size fits all solution, but if we can leverage these welcome kits, smart technology and smart partnerships, we really feel that we can help a lot of families. And by the way, how do you discover which bases have high levels of food insecurity? I mean, how do you define that and how do you discover how many people are affected by it? Sure. So we use the USDA six-item short-form food security scale in our research. 
And because we own our research start to finish, we are able to dissect our data down to the zip code level. And so that tells us which locations have the highest frequency of food insecurity. That is what informed the work that we did around our Million Meals Challenge. We hosted food distribution events at the locations where we saw the highest frequency. So that was Fort Liberty. That was uh, Joint Base lewis McCord in Washington, the Norfolk area, and Fort Cavazos. And so we're really committed to letting the data tell us where to go and what to do. And that's because we own that research and because that survey has such a significant response, it allows us to really make informed decisions. And do you find good cooperation on the part of commanding officers and the apparatus that's in place already? I mean, this place is hundreds of thousands of acres. There's lots of stuff going on, but you find that uh, they'll let you fit into the flow of people arriving? So since the Taking Care of People initiatives that have been rolled out from the OSD and the Department of Defense, we have seen a lot of great support at the local level. And we continue to lean on that. We continue to be partners. And, you know, we don't want to reinvent the wheel here. We want to help complement the existing work that is there. And we also recognize that 70 percent of military families are living off installation. And so how do we leverage the local community and make sure that people are plugged into what they need, regardless of where they are? So how do we meet families where they are? And that's a really important question that takes a public-private partnership approach. So if a soldier and their family move in next door, bring over a plate of brownies and maybe a few cans of tuna fish. You know, it couldn't hurt. And I think that we rely so much in some cases on technology, but it's that warm interpersonal connection that I know so many of us miss in a post-pandemic era. I think that's very important. And as we look at the data, the data reinforces that. We know that families who are experiencing food insecurity are more likely to experience loneliness. And so these are things that create complex, interconnected challenges. And so we're really, again, working to get left of the issues so that we can ultimately prevent things like food insecurity in the military community. Shannon Razadin is president and executive director of the Military Family Advisory Network. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, once again, Congress kicks the can down the road. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of The Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. That proverbial battered can, Congress has kicked it again down Constitution Avenue. The latest continuing resolution keeps the government going until March 1st for some agencies, March 8th for others, and for what has to happen next, we turn to Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And at least they didn't do it over the weekend, but in the broad daylight of the regular news cycle, what really has to happen now? Well, we're sort of at the same position we've been in for months here, where um, there's a new deadline, uh, punting partial funding into, you know, almost the, what, fifth, sixth month of the year now. So um, Congress is still working to come to what to spend in total on the 12 different bills. They, they've kind of come to an agreement and they're going to stick to it on the overall funding level, but they're still figuring out what to put in the bills and then write those bills and try to package them together and get them over the line. Um, and, you know, the longer this goes, the more they'll talk about what else to attach to it. And that's one of the questions that I think we'll be looking at when the House comes back into town a week from now and when the Senate is here this week. And it looks like probably about half of the Republicans in both houses voted for it. That's right. I think it was almost 
right down the middle on the House, maybe 107 on one side and 106 on the other. Democrats did a lot of the heavy lifting in both chambers to get this over the line, which is what we expected. They had to get something that had that sort of support because what we've been seeing is House Republicans tanking procedural votes, which you might have needed if it was a more conservative oriented type of continuing resolution. But this was kind of a straight down the middle, keep things funded where they are, no major changes, a couple of tweaks here and there. But um, like you said, it's just delaying this process for a few more weeks to give Congress time to do its work. So there have been no modifications then to the full year top line numbers that were agreed to couple of months ago at this point now. Right. The the deal that they emerged with right coming out of the recess, getting into this period where it seemed that maybe Speaker Mike Johnson was wavering a little bit about what he had agreed to, but it seems like they, they're back to agreeing to that. Both the top line number that was written into the debt limit deal last year, and then what's been referred to as the side deal, this um, how much you can use to offset spending to reduce the total and, and what sort of people might call gimmicks, but other people would call accounting maneuvers you can use. Um, one of them, of course, is to cancel $20 billion from the IRS this year rather than doing it 10 this year, 10 the next. Um, so that deal has, has been factored into this, but we're still waiting to see how that will materialize in the actual spending legislation. And so far as we speak, it looks like Mike Johnson will not be tossed as speaker, but I guess that's still, given what happened to the last speaker, a possibility, right? It is. It's always out there. The motion to vacate, to call it, only takes one member, which was um, what happened to Kevin McCarthy when one member, Matt Gates, filed it and had enough people on his side to execute that. Uh, the majority in the House is getting slimmer for Republicans. As of yesterday, uh, Mike Johnson from Ohio has resigned. Um, that we had Kevin McCarthy leave at the end of the year and a vacancy with George Santos being expelled. So there's even fewer Republicans now, and um, you only need a couple now to really side with the Democrats, and you could tank a bill, you could take a vote, or you could even vacate the chair if the Democrats went along with it as they did uh, last year. So that threat is always hanging over Johnson's head. And uh, I think his members are willing to use it and talk about it to try and influence the kind of policy decisions he's making. All right. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. And what about the other agreements they had with, well, the other discussions they had with respect to Ukraine and Israel, funding, aid, and also well, in the border and immigration thing, those were kind of tied together and they keep bouncing like billiard balls off the budget talks. It's a tale of two chambers. In the Senate, you have these talks going on between um, James Lankford, the Republican from Oklahoma, and Chris Murphy, a Connecticut Democrat, and then Kirsten Sinema's there, and other members are involved too. They've been trying to come up with a package of immigration changes, border security provisions that can ride along with that Ukraine aid as it's been seen as tied to that. There was a, what members who were there described as a productive meeting at the White House where the congressional leaders um, both the top leaders and then some of the leaders on Ukraine and other issues gathered at the White House. So um, there had been some optimism of votes this week on some sort of package. We'll be watching to see if that happens, um, if it can line up all the support and if members are happy with what emerges, because the other factor here is Donald Trump, um, who was the president and wants to be president again, hasn't liked what he's seen and has made some noises about it, which has, um, I think, made some people uncomfortable. And then Mike Johnson has to get something through his conference, and they want a pretty tight version of this um, like they passed last year. And we'll have to see what they can and will support if um, the Senate does emerge with some sort of deal. Right. And surprisingly, the House is on recess again next week. It seems like they just got back from the holidays. 
yeah, they had kind of set this schedule up and they had these dates for the CR um, for January 19th and February 2nd. This would have been a week in between then, even if they had met the January 19th deadline for some things. But um, we'll have to, you know, they'll, they'll come back and they'll resume their agenda. A lot of these talks that are going on, though, can be handled by people over the phone in terms of agreeing to top line numbers for each of the spending bills and then maybe starting those talks in earnest. Is there any other business before Congress? I mean, there's always business before Congress. Even a so-called unproductive Congress has hundreds of bills. And anything else we can anticipate being discussed? Nominees? Definitely nominees. There are some on the floor this week for the Amtrak Board of Directors, and committees are starting to fire up and deal with some of the nominees that were sent back to the White House and returned. Um, we'll see some votes this week on those, including some for the State Department. The judicial nomination factory is churning again at Judiciary. Uh, and then there's this tax deal that was announced last week, bipartisan with the Ways and Means chairman, a Republican from Missouri, and the Senate Finance chairman, who's a Democrat from Oregon, with a pretty big deal on business tax breaks and the child tax credit. And we'll see what's happening with that. And as they try to build support, they'd really like to move that as soon as possible to try and influence this tax filing season. But um, it will remains to be seen where that rises and how it might get through. But that's something we'll be watching, especially after the action on that last week in committee. And I was talking to one of the top whistleblower attorneys recently, just the other day, Steve Cohn of Cohn Cohn Colapinto. He said there's a bunch of bills for whistleblower support that have bipartisan support that have been passed unanimously in one house or the other, one chamber or the other, but they never seem to quite make it into law. There's a lot of stuff like that that they agree to that seems reasonably routine fixing up things and tightening up where policy needs to be tightened up. Why do those things never actually come out and get voted on and by both parties and go to the president? There's that's, Whistleblowers is just one example. Sometimes it's floor time. Can you get these things over the line in the House and the Senate? The House has mechanisms to deal with things quickly. The Senate, if everyone agrees, they can do it. But some of these bills, if one senator objects, it can be harder to do. Um, and then you look for legislative vehicles. That's one of the things we talk about a lot. A different bill that has to move that becomes a place to put your bill. Um, the spending bill coming up, it, whenever it's ready for March 1st or March 8th, that'll be an attractive vehicle. NDAA is always a big one. This tax deal could be a vehicle or could itself be looking for one. So um, a lot of it is who in leadership you can persuade to move your bill and when and where they might be willing to insert it so that it can get over the line and, and the finish line. But um, there are a lot of bills, bipartisan nature, that stall out um, at some point during the Congress and have to start over in the new one. So um, that, that is a fate for a lot of pieces of legislation. Yeah, because normal people look at this and say, well, the Democrats are OK with it. The Republicans are OK with it. Vote on it. How long does that take? There's a lot of machinery that people aren't aware of, I guess. Yeah, the process takes a while. In the Senate, it can take 10, 11 days to move a bill, um, depending on how many procedural votes you need to take on it. So that, that can really slow things down. Well, yeah, as we've seen, Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. Let's hope for the best. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. As Federal News Network reported last week, there's quite a bit of uncertainty around the Defense Department's ambitious plan to overhaul its household goods moving system. The latest problem? No major moving companies have signed up as subcontractors to HomeSafe, the prime that's about to take responsibility for DOD's moving system. Company officials say they're still confident they can make the transition work. Matt Dolan is HomeSafe's president. He tells Federal News Network's Jared Serbu it's definitely going to be a challenge. There's no doubt there's a different compensation model. That is dead accurate. 
And there's no doubt it's not going to be nearly as compensatory in all moves as the current program is. I don't deny that at all. Um, and I've never stated differently. Um, we did a bottoms up review starting in, you know, 2019 when the, when we first had the, to review, uh, and, and price this program, you know, we were not the low price bidder on this. Um, right. you know, so we bid what we thought were fair rates. We adjusted them as we went through a little bit and, uh, you know, there were parameters as we did that, you know, uh, to get to the pricing we did. And there was a lot going back and forth with Transcom as we bid, did the bid process. We got the bid. Those prices were used, and we we had negotiations with Transcom to adjust for the inflation that's occurred. And we have the pricing we have. Uh, we took into account SCA wages around the country when we built the model. Uh, but there's no doubt in the intervening years in the current program, you know, there's been significantly more revenue available to the movers than we are going to be able to provide in this program. But we still think it's compensatory. People can make money on this program. Uh, we look at what works going out this winter and what people are doing certain levels of work. And we're going to be pretty in line with what, you know, standard awards are going for, for during, at least during the non-peak season this year. We're not going to be far from that. We're going to continue to refine these rates. We're going to continue every year. There's adjustments and we'll bring those adjustments to the street. I can tell you, we are not running a fat program from our end. We're very lean in our processes and our revenue and our staffing. And, but we, for example, we're resourcing all the IT. I don't think, you know, a lot of people realize what that might do for moving companies. I think some have, uh, but a lot of people are already paying their own IT. They're not going to have to invoice right now. There's many move managers in the industry. They're going to have one. And as soon as we get a wait ticket, they'll be compensated for the terms of our contract. Uh, so I think there's some benefits to this that I don't think are truly appreciated. And change is hard. The complexity is hard for people to appreciate. And we're going to continue to, to bring the rates. There are people who see the value. There are groups we have agreements with who, who do see the value in this. But all of them understand, you know, the value comes in doing a good job but doing lots of work for us. And that uh, understanding what we have, the term we use a lot is we're going to have the whole demand signal. So if you're in a military market and you want to participate with us, you can count on you know, a number of crews being busy every single day at a fair rate. You pay those people and know what the SCA wages are. So that's the way we view it. Listen, we are not going to be paying the same as someone's getting paid on in June this year in the current program. That was not priced by us. That's not. But it's also there's there's cost reducing benefits to the to the services was certainly part of what we were trying to do within, you know, within this. So so that's there as well. So uh, I acknowledge the compensation is different. I acknowledge change is hard. I don't believe everyone has fully assessed what the things we'll be resourcing for them will bring to the table, but we have to prove that, right? So the burden's on me once we start booking shipments to bring it into PO and then to, to, to go forward with that as we get people to do the shipments. On your point about the technology piece and, and you know, having, having one app to do everything, Folks I've talked to say that's actually wrong, partly because they're going to have to do things differently for DOD moves than they do for everybody else. So they'll be able to use HomeSafe Connect for their government business, for their for their DOD moves under GHC. But since they're going to be operating in a more traditional model under the tariffs for all of their non-DOD moves, that's not helpful for them. So it's just another piece of technology that they have to carry with them in addition to what they're already using. Am I missing something there? A little bit. I mean... Listen, I don't know. There are people who do mostly military work. I think you're aware of that. Sure, right? sure. In a large military market. So it very much depends on the agency and the van line group. So for one, 
part of what we have is there are some pretty strict security requirements as dictated by Transcom that require us to use one source of IT. So to be clear, what we're trying to do is transformational for the military member, but to secure the PII of the service members and to meet the requirements of Transcom, you have to structure it the way we do as well, to be clear. And so we took that burden and we decided to make it no charge. And, you know, you know, I guess, so we resourced that complete IT, but there's a security aspect of that that is necessary that I think if folks were to understand and have to do on their own, I don't think, I don't think as individual agents, fan lines, I think that would be a pretty big burden. So we've taken on that complete security challenge and that complete piece and given it to them. You're right. But a lot, a lot of it, it depends on how it's priced with a particular software, right? I mean, some of them you buy the thing and, and it depends on the amount of users and the amount of jobs you do. So I do think regardless as a cost reducer to if this is your market and you're going to be doing a fair amount of military work, there is no cost to support the IT for the military. That is a factual statement. Yeah, and I, I totally acknowledge there's a ton about this that you don't control. You're, you're following the terms of the contract for a right. lot of these challenges that you're dealing with here. On the issue of full loads and predictability, this this whole idea that the system gets more efficient because you're utilizing the, the capacity better, all of the companies I've talked to said that is not a problem that they need solved for them, especially during the summer. They say they, you know, they've got all these interline agreements. They've, they've, they currently have ways and use them to make sure that their trucks are full at all times, especially during the summer. And the summer problem is there's not enough capacity in the system. So right. could, could you just respond to that? Sure. So for one, I, I agree largely with what they said, but it's not that easy. So for one, that truck to go get and fill up with through interline agreements to get tonnage out of multiple uh, move managers means all our different compensations and all have to be billed differently. And there's some complexity there that we take out for mm-hmm. two that's great, but I can't tell you how often we booked a 5,000-pound shipment in January, and everyone books a 5,000-pound shipment, and they don't always marry together. Well, we'll have that whole demand signal. So it's also to not just run your truck full during December, during June, but to run your, full, your truck full during January, February, March, because we have that whole demand signal. Uh, I'll give you other examples where we think it brings value. We know that there are, I don't know, you know, 1,000 shipments a year between San Diego and Norfolk, Virginia. Right. So if I can go to an agent and say every single week, you're going to get 20,000 pounds out of Norfolk running to Virginia at this rate, you can count on it, you can plan to it, and you're going to get return tonnage coming back and forth on this. That is not something that is currently available in the current program. And that's uniquely available to the people who participate in this program. It also gives me the opportunity to potentially resource different assets. There are people out there who've come to us who don't currently participate in the military who are excited about this. There are companies out there with significant assets who want to participate specifically in those predictive channels where they have the opportunity to get, you know, tonnage all year long. And so we intend to work with those folks to get there. But uh, so I, I think I challenge a little bit that, yeah, not everyone has a relationship with every move manager. No way that anyone currently has access to 100% of the demand signal, which we do. We're going to be offering you 20 to 26,000 pounds and 20 to 26,000 pounds coming right back if you've got a 53-foot trailer. And uh, we think there's value in that. And if people don't, we understand. But we think there are, there are partners who've looked at it and see the value. Yeah, can you say a little bit more about how you're able to to make those promises of of work during those off season months? Because that that's a little bit out of your control too, right? You're at the mercy of in your in your San Diego to Norfolk example, you're at the mercy of how many PCS orders the Navy cuts in January. Correct, but there's some predictability, Jared. Right? I mean, so we got the data sources from Transcom for the last five years now. So we have hmm. 
going back from 19 through the, the one year we kind of discounted is 2020. And there's incredible predictability on those places. So yes, we're taking hmm. a risk and we'll resource that. But we have, we, we see the numbers fairly stable from market to market between those locations on an annual basis. Transcom has provided us and they provided it to the other bidders at least through three years. So we have the data to look at all the shipments that move from all those locations and the numbers while dynamic on a day-to-day basis are fairly consistent on a uh, week-by-week and month-by-month basis. Matt Dolan, the president of HomeSafe, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Check out Jared's coverage of the moving contract at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 